Thanks for tuning back into the Replatform podcast sponsored by Attract and Hypersonics. You're listening to myself, James Gerd, and my wonderful co-host, Paul Rogers. Hello, mate. How are you today? Good, thanks. How are you doing? Um, yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right. A night of sleep deprivation, and I'm looking forward to talking about projects and cost management. So um, let's set up this episode. But first, thank you for tuning back in for our regulars. And if it's your first time on the podcast, we hope you enjoy it. Uh, you can subscribe to get a new episode alert and would love a like on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, etc. So our topic today is practical ways to save costs in your e-commerce project without killing scope. Um, and the reason for talking about this today is the current global and local economic outlook is pretty bleak. It's as bleak as today's winter mist in the UK. Uh, online retail, we know, boomed during the pandemic. Online traffic and sales maintains higher than pre-pandemic levels after that through 2021. But towards the second half of last year and into this year, there's been a sharp bite of like global events, increasing costs, consumer nervousness around spending. So for some businesses, capital projects are completely candid or on hold. For others, there's a there's a real need to continue with projects because the you know improving tech infrastructure is critical to their growth or even protecting existing sales. But there's a sharp eye on budgets and there's a nervousness about the total spend and needing to bring those those costs down. So what we're going to look at is how can you sensibly manage project costs downwards without ripping the heart out of your scope and functionality? Because one of the biggest risks in trying to strip cost is you impact capability. So we're trying to think about sensible ways of doing it um, and how the business can think about approaching this. So we're going to cover the biggest cost areas in a project, how you manage them, cost efficiencies you can introduce to shave some of the cost lines. Um, you know, nice to have that can be cut without materially damaging your project success. So does that, do you reckon that gives it a good enough setup, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's a lot to talk about actually. Yeah. And really important because every project at some point, unless somebody has like endless pockets comes down to this conversation uh, and typically with finance rates again, what, you know, what's essential, what do we not need to spend? So let's start. So why don't you talk about the, the build and the agency piece and, you know, approaches and thoughts on how you can pull out cost. Yeah, I think this is a, a really important one. I think um, if you're looking to do a lean project, this is probably one of the areas where you could feasibly save the most money. You've obviously got agencies at different ends of the spectrum in terms of cost and, uh, yeah, I guess how we bill and everything else. And I think, you know, there's a lot of good agencies out there that will do a lean project. Um, and maybe there's some areas where you can afford to compromise if you if you have a budget you're working to. Um one of the things that we've written, and I guess one other thing to add would be potentially having more, uh, an agency do more areas to reduce cost as well. Like we've talked a lot over the last however many months about split out design or integrations or whatever else. Uh, if you are working to a budget, potentially again, with compromise, you can work with one provider um, to save money. Um, one of the big areas we've listed down here is avoiding kind of changing how a platform operates or handles certain situations um, unnecessarily. So we've got a few examples, and I'll leave your ones um, for you to comment on, James. But so checkout is one where I've seen people waste, you know, hundreds of dev hours changing the checkout unnecessarily without any like huge need. Um, and you know, kind of looking towards some of the studies that are available online that actually the native checkout would have been fine for launch. Um, another one, which is a recent example from a project I was working on, we had a client that wanted to spend literally hundreds of dev hours on changing the way that filtering worked within Shopify, uh, allow for certain filter 
options to be indexable, but it was essentially a very, very specific uh, route of implementation, uh, which was quite unnecessary. And we could have replicated it um, with, uh, and we did go down the route of replicating it with a much leaner option. Um, another example, multiple addresses within a customer account. So being able to migrate, you know, 15 customer accounts into, sorry, the customer addresses into an account. That's the kind of thing where it's like really minor uh, friction point for a, for a very, very small amount of customers that are going to have multiple addresses. And then you've got the data migration overhead and then all of the development overhead around customizing the platform as well. Um, another one in a similar vein is global accounts. So as much as I think global accounts does have a place sometimes and, you know, it can uh, add value for certain types of retailers. Um, I've seen loads of people that have got multiple big commerce instances or Shopify instances uh, start reviewing like single sign-on solutions uh, and generally just looking at scoping out major projects to allow a customer to be able to log in the same account across multiple stores. And we'd say, again, that's like a massive edge case in most cases. And if you communicate the experience well enough, um, it's not necessary. Um, and then the only other one I've uh, listed down here a bit further on is kind of the back end processes and workflows. So again, this is more focused. On, in fact, I'd say when I wrote this, it's more focused on the SaaS platform, but the same could apply to like a Magento or any other platform where you can feasibly change the way that the back end works. But yeah, you just need to be cautious. One is going to cost you more short term, but it's also going to cost you more long term. Uh, and so yeah, that would be enough one. Yeah, I think that's. I think it's a really nice example. It's the. It comes down to that whole. What What do you really need versus what What would you like that isn't critical to business success? And I found this with um, like order management stuff and customizations where people have been asked on the finance teams asking for things like we want to be able to generate a commercial invoice to automatically send to customers, um, and we want that to come out of e-commerce. And then the question becomes, but but why do you need it to come out of e-commerce? Do you not have that capability, for example? three PLs, the ability to generate the commercial invoice, and then try to move some of these areas out of the e-commerce project to be non-deliverables. They still need to be delivered, but actually the, the cost and effort in e-commerce probably doesn't make sense. Another one is BI and reporting, and we talk about this a lot, don't we? The, where everyone wants to endless reporting, and that's fine, but is that the e-commerce platform's job? And an e-commerce system isn't a BI tool. Well, most of BI tools, some have BI extensions, but creating custom reports, things like promotions, you can get standardized reporting out there, but when you want to go to the extra level, like, you know, complex reports around reporting on gift with purchase, free items, the sales and tax reporting, you have to draw a line and say, okay, the, the cost and effort to, to now generate custom reports and extract the data and manipulate it doesn't make sense. You should be doing this in other systems like ELP, or you need to invest in a BI and that might be a phase two. Um, other things I've seen where people have tried to overcomplicate is, um, and this is not just the e-commerce, it's in other systems, is things like product bundles where they've wanted to create all these custom bundles for online and they don't have the bundles set up. So they don't have like bundle SKUs um, in warehousing and going down this processing conversation where well, we want to create new bundles that we can display and instead of trying to physically change how your products are stocked and managed, which is a pain in the arse, using things like you know virtual bundles within the e-commerce system where you just set that up as a product in e-com and it just passes through the line items in the order files to be picked as standard and then you can set promotional pricing on the items i think anything where you can do it simply using existing functionality versus changing any 
process is, is sensible. And that checkout, when you said, I think definitely, I've seen, I had a conversation once with, with charity where they wanted to um, add on top of the payment gateway support for native support for direct evidence and e-mandates to support recurring payments. And we went through a process of trying to understand how critical it was. And, you know, the argument, well, our customers are used to paying by direct debit, but actually an education thing with the customers about you can set up recurring payments through the gateway, but it's card recurring payments rather than direct debit mandates. Why build in an e-mandate flow that isn't supported natively when you can use an existing functionality? Sometimes there's a, well, let's, let's change the, 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 um, the proposition to the customer and educate the customer rather than trying to hack a checkout, which you're right, it's massively risky to change a checkout flow. Um, okay, so that feels like a good set of areas that people can explore. Now I'm going to go into content management and then you let me know your thoughts. So I've seen this when when people try to overcomplicate the content management tool and they need because everybody wants enterprise class, best in class, you know, publish workflow, um, you know, uh, publish schedules. But the question becomes how much do you really need? Um, how much is a we've got to fix issues versus actually this is just like the ultimate dream if we had a bigger content team. So I think number one bit of content management is being sensible on how many different content layouts. I've seen design phases get a little bit elaborate on uh, all these different types of layouts rather than a good example would be like if you have an image with text and a heading, thinking about how that could work in different, different ways to satisfy different content needs across the site and building a functional spec around it that enables that flexibility rather than having to create different layouts which involve additional code. So you could create a standardized layout that can be flipped. So you know, with a simple bit of um, logic to change, the image now goes on the right, the text on the left. You can add or remove the heading. You can add a call to action button. You can add or remove a link. So you can create, you can basically create multiple functions for the same layout and do that in one piece of development rather than having four or five different layouts for the same thing. So I think there's there's an intelligence around thinking about how you execute content management layout flexibility. And then it's the other functionality around it, like people wanting a staged environment. Do you need that? Because you know, a lot of systems nowadays don't provide standard staging without having either third-party plugins or having to set up additional environments and there's a cost and effort to a maintenance. You can avoid that. I mean, live previews work for a lot of businesses that don't have complex content needs. So I think there are times when you can just push back and go, do you really need that versus look at how the tooling would enable you to achieve that in a different way. What What's your take on the concept management? Yeah, I think um, I agree with what you are saying. And I think the other thing is all of the platform would get so much better in this area. Like Shopify just announced loads of stuff around how they're starting to introduce their own kind of content models and everything else. And then they're introducing like uh, meta objects. And I think, yeah, all of the other platforms are doing the same. And your last point here around third party, I think is uh, a, a really good point. Like all the time I see people just spend a fortune on third parties, particularly if they go down the headless route and it's really unnecessary. Like, yeah, there was one I heard about recently where they basically invested probably 60% of their budget into a DXP and it was really unnecessary and, and too much value. Um, yeah, so I think this is a really good area where you can just work within the parameters of the platform and, um, and you just need to be, avoid the shiny things. For sure. Yeah. I think this is a really important point is it, it comes back to prioritization, which we'll come on to in a minute. Um, cause you've got to have very robust processes for defining priorities, but I've seen this before as well. People want the, the ultimate end goal of a DXP and personalized content management, but when you strip it back and go, well, 
how much do you really need to do that? And, and do you have the resource, internal resource to truly personalize content? Because it's not just the, the system doesn't do it. It's got to have the content in it to drive it. Um, and there's a limit to what AI can do. There is a human element to generating the content assets and managing the distribution across different systems. So I think you've got to be, I think there's an element of, pro, of, of positively challenging businesses and, and how capable are they ready to use this toolkit versus it's 80% of it going to be sat there idle for the first 12 months, in which case defer that to the later phase. Attract, your complete product discovery growth engine. Create relevant shopping experiences that convert into sales and grow online revenue with personalized search, merchandising and recommendation solutions powered by AI. Find out more at attract.com. I was just going to add to that. There's going to be two underlying themes here, or like the two big challenges for anyone uh, as a person managing a project going into this is one, as you say, prioritization. Um, and the biggest one is going to be stakeholder management because most of the things that I'm talking about here are not controlled by the person running the project. It's like other stakeholders that have different priorities. So I think like that's the bit where you kind of need to get your ducks in a row early on and set expectations and everything else, which we've obviously talked about loads over the last two and a half years. Um, but yeah, I think that's kind of like the main underlying. Yeah, exactly. And that, that leads us on to like scope control, which is a, uh, a suitably generic title for what we're going to talk about. So I'll start with the discipline bit. And then you can talk at some of the, the 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 practical ways that you can do this. So for me, that it starts with a proper prioritization criteria, and and just saying we're using Moscow is not enough. It's far too subjective. Like if you ask a a um, subject matter expert if all of the requirements they've defined are must-haves, they're going to say yes. You have to pull apart what must is, and it's things like. Do we already have it and it is needed? Either it's business critical for us or the customers need it to to to, to trade with us. Um, is it fixed in a known issue where we've got to do that? Otherwise, we continue with a, a problem. Is it protecting or growing revenue? Is it essential for compliance? So if we don't do this, we're going to get our hands sat to risk of fine. There have to be proper criteria around must versus should, could, and won't. So I think I think that's a discipline a lot of projects don't go through uh, uh, early on. They just say, right, give us a Moscow and everything comes back with an M or S. Uh, and then you have to spend another load of time going through and pulling that apart. So that's my starting point is get everyone bought into that and communicate and explain to people why this series of criteria is because it will make it a lot easier to defer things into other phases if you've got this nailed down. Um, and that's where project steering comes in handy. And I know a lot of people go, oh, that's a big project. It's not. Project steering just means having a process and governance that helps you make the right decisions. In a small business, it can literally be the project owner and sponsor. And the sponsor might be the CFO. The project owner might be the head of e-com. Project steering doesn't have to have eight people on a committee that meets every week or month. It can be two people you know, being very agile, but having a set of decision criteria so that they can make decisions and then communicate it back out. So that's my dullness in terms of things that help you to to have the right structure in place to manage price costs downwards. What well, what are some of your examples of where you, you you see the ability to like take items out of scope? Yeah, so I think um, as you say, it's important to yeah come back to what should be pushed out of scope. I've seen recently things like a Lang and 
you know, like a certain levels of being able to manage redirects to be pushed out of scope. And um, SEO is one where like, there's not always a champion kind of fight in the corner for it. So that's one that I think can run off a little bit pushed out of scope um, to do that properly. And like you say, compliance of because I think um, one that I've written down is integration. So I think that's uh, something where people get carried away quite often because, yeah, I guess you're going to have an ops team and they will have a dream of, or not even necessarily just the ops team, but you will have different stakeholders in the business that will have dreams of housing, everything in the ERP and just pushing out any kind of, you know, web stores you have and everything else. Um, and maybe, you know, they will have been sold a dream through a sales process of using an ERP like a PIM or, you know, certain bits of order management. Um, and I think I often see that be a big variable for budget timeline in replatforming where I guess if you can, um, and particularly if you're working to a tight timescale budget, you probably want to be looking at what you have right now, taking that across. If there's any obvious things that can add a lot of value to the business with minimal um, dev hours or you know professional services hours, I think um, that makes perfect sense. But this is, again, like an area where you can just lose a shed load of money. Uh, and actually it could be done further in the future or it could be avoided entirely. So I think that's a big one for me. Um, design would be another one. Uh, I think you go through a design process. Again, you've got some more challenging stakeholders and they start throwing all sorts in that they've seen on Burberry or Nueve or whoever else. Um, so I think that's another one where you need to have, you need to be very mindful of scope when you go through a design process. Um, yeah, and I think they're probably the two big ones that I would add to what you said. Yeah, I feel like we need to do a separate episode on managing design phases and then exploding out of control because I typically I find these are the ones that are especially in like with with a lot of um, luxury brands controlling stakeholders and it becomes challenging um the the I think my last point of scope control is is having embedding a principle amongst every stakeholders we are going to make the most of our platform ecosystem and we will only go outside that where there is a clear business case. A good example, I had a project recently where the clients, um, an omni-channel, they've got store um, and there is a a, a, a a clear journey for product discovery from online into store where a lot of um, conversions get completed in store and therefore Oz is really important. And they were looking at a full-end, full-service, like clientele in solution for in-store but not just being able to take a transaction, but then doing customer comms and customer loyalty. And actually sensibly decided that, because they were using Shopify Plus, that integrating with Shopify POS was the path of least resistance and least cost, because Shopify with, with Plus, POS is included for things up to eight um, instances. So you've got no license fee. The data models align from the customer point of view, so you can pick up the customer basket in store. It's unified in a single customer account. It actually gives it a lot of efficiencies. And they decided they could push the clientele and stuff out into a separate phase or into a separate solution afterwards. Um, and that's it provided and kept the cost down. So I think sometimes there's just that ability to to pull back the expectation, say, okay, what what is essential for for start? And we can save quite a bit of development cost if we keep to that ecosystem where there's already integration paths. Um, next bit is project management. And this is an area where where actually, even on small projects, you can cut cost say cut cost or minimize cost depending on, on um, how you approach it. So I think for a lot of projects that the, the instant thought is we need a project manager 
we need somebody to control it in-house. And that and the project manager is going to be a contractor normally because you're not going to employ a project manager unless you're a massive business where you've ongoing projects where you can justify the headcount. A full-time contract PM, um, it, like if you take like UK, um, you're talking £500 a day plus, depending on level of ex- experience and seniority. So that over six months, that's an expensive cost. Now, it can be highly justified because project management's critical to success, but if you don't have a complex project, say you're a small team, it's a single site, limited integrations, and there aren't many stakeholders to manage, there aren't lots of other projects that have dependencies to, to plan and coordinate. The question is, do you really need a full-time PM your side? You let the systems integrator do all the technical PM work because that's what their PM will do. You could, if you make sure that one person from your current team is the data contact and has a bandwidth to work with their technical PM and manage tasks and coordinate internally to get stuff done, arguably you can do that. And that can cut out a large, large sum um, from the project. The in-between version is you can use, and I've done this before, and it's not about pitching my service, it's just saying this is a way that you can reduce it, is have an experienced consultant to support and give oversight and help the team to keep things in control and make sure the agency's focused on the right areas. And you can do that for like one day a week and a retainer. You can save 40k plus on a six-month project by not having a permanent PM. So there are ways to do it. There are pros and cons to this. I, I mean, I'm all for project managers. I think project managers are worth their, weight, worth their weight in gold. But when you have budget constraints, you've got to think about where's the best use of that spent. And if you get the right agency partner who's got a really good experienced PM who you trust and work with and got a good relationship, you can sometimes pull this bit back. Um, so the next point, which I know you're going to talk more about, Paul, is ensuring you have enough definition to avoid overages. And I guess this is thinking about like support contracts as well. So do you want to talk people through that? Yeah. So I think, um, biggest risk to budget is having like a super open brief post discovery, um, and not having enough definition to cover yourself and having like, you know, assumptions and misunderstanding around how things are going to be approached. So I think, you know, one thing is getting enough definition up front to even get a a reasonable quote or like a semi-accurate quote pre-discovery. You then go into uh, discovery, you then have, you know, the discussion around what's needed, everything else, and then you end up with a quote you're happy with. Um, But I would say you, at that point, you need to be avoiding TNM as much as possible and you need to leave as little open as possible and you need to make sure that you've got a very detailed spec as to how things are working on the front end, on the back end. Ideally, you know, you'd have like user stories and user acceptance criteria, um, summary acceptance criteria and everything else. I think that then covers you because, yeah, I mean, there's you often see projects that go well over budget and it's always caused by TNM. And to be honest, the holy grail here is you have, you end up somewhere in the middle so that it's kind of fair on both sides. And then, you know, you set parameters so that things are reasonable or the potential overages are reasonable. And, um, you know, it works for both the client and the agency. But I would say if you're working to a budget, you have to be very careful with that. Um, one other thing that I've already touched on that I've mentioned here is using a single agency for design and dev, but you just need to make sure that you're diligent in finding a partner that is good at development with that platform and good at design essentially, and can, you know, cater for the needs of the business. Um, and then the other one that again, I've already touched on is potentially finding a partner that could help with integrations as well. Um, assuming that their offering is 
uh, sufficient, I guess, because that's not always the case. Um, but yeah, I think they're uh, good areas to avoid unnecessary expense. Yeah, I think you're right. And we've talked about this on, on lots of different episodes and the criticality of a discovery phase in helping manage costs. And, and I would always urge people that when you look at, when people, especially finance teams, look at discovery as a cost rather than a value add, they see a cost sign like, you know, six grand, eight grand, 10 grand, depending on the size of the project. And then there's a, a reticence. So how can we reduce this? Can we narrow this? Can we do fewer workshops? And it's a false economy because you say, you're right, you save more money by better decision-making during discovery um, than otherwise you end up with a statement of work that just keeps creeping and creeping during a project. So I'd 100% agree, put the right money into discovery and you can save costs later on. And I think that thing you said about looking at the right partners is important because depending on your setup, you end up with different um, SLAs, yes, um, small level agreements. So if you pick a partner who focuses only on the design in the front end but doesn't do any of the integration work, you've got to make sure that that partner can provide an end-to-end SLA for all the technical support management so that you're not paying multiple fees, one to them and one to an integration partner. If you are, how have you negotiated them and do you understand how that relationship works so you don't end up in a position where later on there's a problem and you end up incurring time from the front-end partner and time from the integration partner to fix an issue, which ends up with a duplication of costs. A single SLA will always be more cost-effective but it doesn't mean that it's it's permissible within the the setup you've got with your partners. So yeah, I agree. You've got to really nail down into that and, and negotiate effectively. Um, now let's talk about a really important one, third-party solutions. You know, especially with the modern obsession about talking about you know, flexible commerce, headless commerce, composable commerce, pick your buzzword at will. But there is definitely a business driver towards um, using best in breed. Not everyone wants an all-in-one solution. The ability to, to plug and play capabilities into the core platform to extend your like, customer experience or your business tooling. So what what advice have you got about how do you sensibly manage the cost of third parties so you don't add stuff in you don't need? Yeah, I think um, a big part of it is understanding the native capabilities of the platform, um, for one, um, and looking at that versus what you have at the moment versus what you actually need. Um, I guess product recommendations would be a really good example for me where uh, quite often, it won't add too much time to manage uh, recs based on rules or even manually um, versus paying a fortune for a personalization tool. And that's not to say, like, you know, certain brands won't end up with, uh, you know, rationale to go down that route, particularly if you're like, you know, a big complex catalog, uh, multi brand, et cetera, makes complete sense. But that's often one example. Search could be another, content management, another. I think it's just looking at, yeah, what your requirements are versus what you can do with the platform. Because the other thing is sometimes you'll just benefit from using the platform in terms of like you talked about connectivity of ecosystem earlier a little bit, or you touched on it. Um, and I think sometimes if you use a native feature within the platform, actually, you know, you'll benefit from having, you know, being able to use standard APIs, being able to, you know, integrate straight into your ESP or whatever other whatever other third parties you're using. So not even always just about cost, but I always feel like it's a case of trying to stick to native until you uh, build a case otherwise. And yeah, in a lot of cases, you'd be able to save a lot of money in this area um, by trialing platform functionality first, assuming it's a budget constraint. Yeah, I, I like that. I, I like that approach. I think that's a really good philosophy for people to have is, 
we don't pull in any third parties unless we fundamentally can't achieve our business vision without it. And that we understand the business case for it. And the business case doesn't just have to be about revenue. It could be about retaining customers. Um, well, I guess, which is revenue basically, but as in it isn't a, a revenue growth, it's a protection of what you've already got. Um, or it could be an internal cost efficiency. I think a couple of examples I've seen of that native versus third party, a, a, a project where people wanted to put Algolia in for AI, ML, search, best in class search. And I, I like Algolia, I think it's a great platform. It's got really good search engine and it's better than a lot of native capabilities. But actually, when we looked at it, the search sessions were around 2% of all sessions and the queries were so basic. I mean, there was hardly any queries above two words. So it, the native Elastic with the right setup would cater for all of the core queries they needed. They didn't actually need to to invest in the tool and they, the, the demand wasn't there. So all of a sudden you say, well, actually, you're not ready for that yet. As the site sophistication goes up and as the search query complexity goes up, then you've got the, the, the next phase investment in that to take you to the next level. And then personalization, I think you talked about earlier about DXPs, et cetera, is do you currently have personalization? If the answer is no, you don't have to have it for phase one. You can push it to phase two. But secondly, it's about understanding like buying cycles and frequency of visit. If people on average visit once every few months um, and it's you don't have loads and loads of um, um, frequent visits to build up a decent, strong profile of the customer, and the purchase frequency is not that often. So what merit is there in an AI and ML engine overlaying advanced personalization? And you know, do, do you need the segmentation capability? Do you have strong enough customer segments? Is there enough distinction between how people shop? And it, it, you know, if you are like a, a mono brand with a very small product catalog, there are diminishing returns for having this level of personalization. You might want to think about how you actually just use things like visual merchandising to control the, the visual presentation to the customer rather than automation strategies. So there's always arguments for and against these things, but you've got to have them and push back. And sometimes you can strip tens of thousands out of a project uh, on an ongoing licensing point of view just by having that conversation. Um, cool. So the next um, to, or the final um, area we're going to pull out today uh, is subject matter specialists. So this is where you use third-party consultants, agencies, contractors to deliver capability. So what's your take on this? Yeah, so I think we've got a few listed here. I think the first one listed is actually no. I personally think that's absolutely critical, but I think in a lot of cases, in fact, most cases I prefer anyway, I think you could go down the route of using a contractor versus a large agency and you look at outlaying 20K versus 100K as an example. Um, so I think that's one potential cost saving, but I do think having a tech, CEO input for a project is absolutely critical and having someone that's taken full ownership of the deliverables. Um, analytics, I've put in the same bracket, same principle, like, you know, there are some really good specialists out there um, rather than needing to use a large agency. Um, but I think it's really important that you get that done right. And, you know, a big part of replatforming is measurement and being able to, you know, look at numbers and see if it's been a bad project, good project, successful failure and in order to do that you have to have a like for like or at least an understanding of why it's different um so i think analytics is really important um and then qa and uat is the other one that i've put down um do you need uh, a third party here like quite often we'll pull in someone to support with uat if there's not enough resources or capacity across project team um 
but is it necessary? Like, could you do it in-house? Could you pull in different members of the business and give them particularly detailed test scripts? Um, yeah, can you do it yourself? And I guess that's the overall principle, isn't it? But yeah, I think you've got a few more written down here as well. Yeah, I, I think that whole thing about agency versus freelancer is really important because there are a lot of incredibly good agencies out there that are very good at adapting their core process to suit different businesses. There are others that are very good in a specific niche and have a, a standardized approach. It doesn't suit all companies and therefore you could end up paying for a level of service you don't need that isn't as ideally suited to your business. And freelancers, but generally, not always, will be lower cost because they don't have the big agency overheads to manage. So you can sometimes strip, you know, three, four, 5k out of a project by using like an, a technical SEO freelancer versus uh, using an agency and a retainer. Uh, so yeah, fully agree with that. And the UAT bet 100% with you, unless the size and complexity of the project and the number of stakeholders of the business means that if you don't have a specialist who's writing um, the scripts and controlling it, it's going to get messy. On so many projects, I've done UAT scripts in Google Sheets for people working with their stakeholders where we just have, you know, you know and it's built, if you get the right statement of work, you can very quickly generate UAT scripts because you've got all of the list of capabilities that you want to be able to validate. So yeah, I'm a hundred percent agree. I think the other one I'll pull out accessibility. Now accessibility is hugely important, not just because compliance wise, you risk fines if you get it wrong, but why would you want to piss off millions and millions of people who want to be able to use your site effectively, whether they're using screen readers or they got visual impairment, it doesn't make any sense. So from a CX point of view, you've got to have the basics and accessibility covered, but there are ways to do it. So part of the right technical agency, they will they will build um, to accessible coding standards, get the right platform, accessibility in terms of how that platform's built and the core code in there, like, you know, themes and, and templates is there. Then you have, you know, there are online tools that can give you basic accessibility audits and checks for free that will give you pointers if there's anything, you know, that's not meeting the basic level of compliance uh, for, you know, WCAG, for ADA in the US. And again, here, you don't need... You don't have to have an excellent expert unless the risk of not doing this correctly means that that actually it's more of a business um, uh, damage um, than not investing it. And then accessibility audit experts yeah, are worth their weight in gold. So I think sometimes you've got to ask that question, how critical is doing the additional level of auditing versus what you'll get through choosing the right platform and partners? Um. So we've gone through quite a lot. Um, any any like parting words of wisdom about about what people need to think about when approaching um, cost reductions in projects? Um, I don't think so. I think the only thing I would say, because like Ruth said, this is, comes down to prioritization and stakeholder management. I think the only thing I'd say is if, if you're prioritizing things and you don't necessarily fully understand an area, just ask other people be that the agencies you're talking to consultants whatever else you made a point around uh sometimes just paying for like hours of consultancy can save you a lot of money and i think just just ask people that have done it before because i think you can you i've seen some projects that have been like super lean be like ridiculously successful um but they just i think as long as you're like informed you don't go compromise in the wrong areas i think um yeah, there's nothing wrong with going down this route. Yeah, agreed. And um, it's interesting. I um I posted out on LinkedIn earlier about 
to, to lots of people, okay, we're, we're planning on doing an episode like this. What have you learned and what would your tips be? Because what I want to do is include them when we put the post live, include like what other people have said in the industry. And actually a lot of the initial stuff coming back is about scope management, MVP being sensible of what you have to have for launch versus what you don't need. So you're not spending on things that aren't critical to the business. So there's a lot of, lot of commonality on this um, phasing as well. So it's interesting to see uh, that other people are thinking along the same lines. But if you're listening, you know, go to the website. Um, we have a landing page on all of our posts. I'll be adding in other people's comments and referencing who gave them. So you can always connect with other people if you want to you know, pick their brains as well. Um, cool. So I hope that's been useful and practical. Thanks for listening. Do keep your ear open for the next episode. We'll drop one every week. We'd love you to subscribe if you haven't already. And we would love if you haven't given us on a rating on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, etc. and make us feel better about ourselves. Until next week, everybody. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.